Amen. Good morning. You may be seated. Thank you, band. As I've said many times before, I'm about to get excited about Jesus. He is very (laughs) worth getting excited about. We get excited about a lot of things. It's good to put our passions in the place that is, uh, is most worthy of it. Well, today is a day of rejoicing because Jesus Christ rules and reigns on the throne. Uh, because Jesus uh, has conquered death and conquered hell on the cross. Today is also a day where um, I want to address something fairly serious, but uh, with a fairly, um, um, hopefully a, an encouraging word for all of us today. I wanted to give a bit of a response today to the Supreme Court ruling on the same-sex marriage that happened this week. This was... Uh, this week, the Supreme Court of the United States, for those who are living, uh, if you ever saw the Geico commercial, the guy under the rock, you know, <laughs> that didn't know what was going on. But uh, uh, anyway, joke didn't work. This week, the Supreme Court <laughs> ruled that individual states cannot enforce a ban on same-sex marriage. And this effectively made same-sex marriage the law of the land in all 50 states. Uh, I need and desire to address this ruling in order to give you clarity Uh, on where we stand as a church and as a movement of churches uh, on this issue. Now, I want to make something very clear today, as I'm using that word a lot. Uh, We desire to be clear, and we will be, but the heart of our message is compassion. And the heart of what I'm going to share today is the true compassion of God. Let me begin with a couple of quotes from Christian leaders around the nation regarding uh, this Supreme Court decision, the 5-4 decision, upholding um, the rights of same-sex couples to uh, marry. Franklin Graham of Samaritan's Purse, and you might notice the last name, the son of Billy Graham, said, With all due respect to the court, it did not define marriage and therefore is not entitled to redefine it. Graham wrote on his Facebook page, Long before our government came into existence, marriage was created by the one who created man and woman. Almighty God, and his decisions are not subject to the review or revision by any man-made court. God is clear about the definition of marriage in his holy word. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Genesis 22 uh, um, 2 and 24, Graham said. The president of the Southern Baptist Convention, President uh, Reverend Ronnie Floyd, said, I humbly remind everyone today that the Supreme Court of the United States is not the final authority, nor is the culture itself, but the Bible is God's final authority about marriage. And I want to mention, a, uh, uh, thankfully, an African-American voice on this as well to make sure that we're getting um, a broader breadth of our leaders in the body of Christ. Tony Carter, lead pastor of East Point Church, said this, The recent ruling by, um, if you ever wonder what SCOTUS is, Supreme Court of the United States, is disheartening in many ways. Though we could not anticipate this day coming, we nonetheless express regret that our country continues to slide down the slope of moral relativity. Nevertheless, the church must remember that our marching orders do not come from earthly kings or judges, but rather we put our trust in the one who judges rightly, 1 Peter 2.23. Regardless of what some may be saying, God's word is not ambiguous about these matters. We must remember the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 8. Let us continue to stand on it and for it. Before I um, bring a little clarity from my uh, and our position as a um, 
church and as a movement, I want to say something. Uh, I have several friends. I have friends that are from the gay community that I love and that I care for deeply. If you know me personally, you know the people that are my friends. This is not an issue to me. This is not a political issue to me, so to speak, although it is very political. This is about real people who are valuable in God's sight and who are very valuable in my own sight. I want to make that very clear before I go forward. However, we as a church, we have to be clear about this issue of homosexuality and same-sex marriage from a biblical perspective. It grieves my heart that we as a church have taken a hateful tone, and that is something that I would pray uh, would not be seen or, or heard among us. But we must take a tone of clarity in coming back to the original design that God had made for mankind. It's important for us to know God's original design, not simply man's latest opinion. As a church, Scripture is our guidebook, and Jesus is the head of our church through the leadership of the Holy Spirit. So the question asked, what does the Bible say about marriage? God's design for marriage. Getting back to the clarity of what was God's design and what is his design. Genesis chapter 20 and verses 20 through 24 says, um, uh, says, So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man will leave his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Biblical family is defined as the marriage between one man and one woman. That is what we see biblically as God's design for marriage. A man is to leave his father and mother and unite to his wife in marriage. The second thing, God's design for sexuality. The devil did not design sexuality to torment us. The devil doesn't create anything. He, He can only pervert or twist that which is already created by Almighty God. God's original design for sexuality is to be between one man and one woman in the context of a marriage relationship. These are the boundaries for legitimate, approved by God, sexual relations. There's a list of unlawful sexual relations in Leviticus 18 that makes these boundaries clear. And that uh, list goes far beyond homosexuality uh, to many heterosexual forms of uh, sexual involvement that are not uh, approved uh, by our loving and caring God. God told the husband and wife in Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 through 28, uh, he told them to multiply. It says here, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, over the livestock, and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. This biblical design for marriage is that a man and a woman are needed in order to fulfill the first command that God gave us as a people, to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth and to subdue it. One, it is not the only (laughs) design that God had, but one of God's designs for sexuality in the the, um, confines and joyful bounds of marriage is 
uh, for reproduction of our race and, and uh, bearing fruit unto God and filling the earth for his glory and for his namesake. So that's the first thing, God's design for marriage. It's where we stand biblically. And once again, I want to say this, um, wherever I would like to stand, <laughs> I must stand biblically. I must stand with what God's word says uh, uh, and that is the most effective way that I'm going to be able to love. What does the Bible say about homosexuality? Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 22, the Old Covenant, and 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9, as well as 1 Timothy uh, verses 1, uh, uh, 1 Timothy 1.10. I want to say Leviticus was written, I am saying, Leviticus was written by Moses, 1 Timothy uh, and 1 Corinthians were written by the Apostle Paul. So there's an Old Testament and New Testament all define homosexuality as sinful behavior. I want to mention as well, though, that any sexual relations outside the context of biblical marriage between a man and woman is also considered sinful behavior. This is one of them. It is not the only one. It is not uh, that. We are all born into sin, and we are, all have a propensity to all kinds of sin. However, we do have a choice how we live our lives. We may not feel that we have a choice in our feelings, understand that, but we do have a choice in our actions and in how we live our lives. So a question I want to ask, coming off of biblically where we stand with these issues, is how does this fit with my sermon three weeks ago <laughs> entitled A Place for Sinners? What I am saying today is intended because it was brought to my front door and your front door and every human on earth's front door, <laughs> this issue. So I am addressing an issue brought to us all so that we can be clear on the biblical stance. But what it does not do is change the fact of our heart of compassion, our heart of love, and the desire for us to be a place for all people and a place for sinners. What I'm, as I said that. However, um, when we still desire to be a place where sinners of all types, I want to encourage you before I say this, to listen to my message from three weeks ago on Community of Faith, cfcfboston.org, a place for sinners, and you will get um, 25 to 30 minutes of me hammering this out <laughs> for you. But this is very clear. In the midst of the clarity of the biblical message, this is how we should operate. We want to be a place where sinners of all types, because welcome to the club. I am a sinner, apart from God's grace. I have sinful desires. I have unruly sinful desires apart from God's power and His Spirit. But He gives freedom. He does do that. We all are sinners. We want a place where people feel loved and cared for deeply, not judged. Not the very um, involvement with us that they feel we, we care not, we'd rather prove ourselves right. They, we want to be engaged and active where people feel a belonging with us. Where sinners belong. Because I wouldn't belong to this church if sinners couldn't belong to this church. <laughs> the second thing is we want to be a place, we want to come to understand the love, those who come involved, uh, come here, all sinners, to understand the love of the Savior, Jesus, and begin a journey of faith. That's where sinners believe. So the first place is to belong. The second place is belief. Where Jesus, as we saw through this, He interacted with those who were sinful. Not only interacted, but pursued them with a whole heart. And then belief came. But ultimately, as Jesus looked at the woman caught in the act of adultery, who was brought to him for judgment by these men, he said to her, go now and leave your life of sin. Sinners' behavior changes. When we come in contact with God, when we come in contact with his presence, he empowers us to live a new life. 
Whatever background you or I had, whatever background anyone has, we are going to be, through increasing contact with God and with His people, ever increasingly walking in a new life in Jesus Christ. That is what we want to be a place where sinners belong. Because we're all sinners. We want to be a place where sinners are able to believe. And we want to be a place to cultivate the, the behavioral changes that come out of a life as a new creation in Jesus. May we be a people who are clear about God's original design and His original plan for humanity. Yet may we be a people who are compassionate and who are humble and who proclaim the love of the Savior Jesus in a compelling way that gives everyone an opportunity to have a new identity as a new creation in Christ Jesus. Let me pray, and then I'm going to move forward to my sermon today, A Place for the Rich and the Poor. Lord, we love you. I thank you, Lord, for the people in our city. I thank you for those from every walk of life in our city. I thank you for um, uh, the uh, folks that are involved in the gay community, Lord. I thank you for them. And I, I, I thank you for those that are involved in all sorts of um, Uh, groupings around our city and nations and tribes and tongues and peoples, Lord. And we're asking you today that your kingdom would come, that we would be clear in our hearts about your biblical message. But it would not end up in judgment. It would not end up in an arrogant, prideful, hateful attitude, but a broken heart. As as I said a few weeks ago, that we would be one uh, beggar sharing with another beggar where to find bread in Jesus. We love you and we praise you. We honor you and we adore you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to move forward today and discuss a little bit about a place for the rich and the poor. We're in the middle of a series. Uh, as I said, I referenced the message a few weeks ago um, uh, of a place for sinners. We've discussed quite a few things, a place uh, for, um, about being places for all people to come before God and experience His grace. What we want to do is to create places of grace so that uh, throughout our city, in our homes, in our workplaces, and wherever we go, we allow the glory of God to be seen in different people's lives. What is a place of grace? It's a way of seeing the prayer of Jesus answered, which says, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When people come in contact with us, they receive the love of Jesus. They receive the healing of Jesus. They receive a place. Uh, uh, They receive what it means to be a place of grace. You see, grace is not licensed to do whatever I want to do. Grace, when truly understood through Jesus, is the power to live in a new life from Jesus. Praise His holy name. We want to come together as we go throughout our city and share the love of Jesus in these places of grace. To come together and to celebrate that we are a diverse people, full of faith in our God, compassionately reaching the world around us. Today we're going to discuss the topic, a place for the rich and for the poor. And this is my main point today, so you can look up here on the screen. We want to be a place... Well, I'll read it to you. We want to be a place where the rich and the poor are treated with equal value, where the rich and the poor give and receive what each other have to impart, and where God's financial and spiritual resources are released upon communities and nations as a result. Let me say that again. We want to be a place where the rich and poor are treated with equal value. We want to be a place where the rich and poor give and receive because everyone has something to give, 
and everyone has something to receive. And we want it to, to multiply out throughout our city and throughout the nations, changing people for God's glory. What does the Bible say about the rich and the poor? Let's look real quickly at Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 2. Why don't you read that along with me? Rich and poor have this in common. The Lord is the maker of them all. Wow. How about that? (laughs) The scripture here clearly indicates that we're all made in God's image. That we're all made by God, whether rich or poor. There is no one more made in God's image or less made in God's image. No matter how much money you have in your bank account, uh, or your uh, 401k, or your 403b, or your uh, whatever you want to call it, the, um, uh, when all is stripped away, we all have the same flesh and blood. We're all standing in the same place before God. The second thing is that favoritism is forbidden in the church. Let's look here at the book of James, chapter 2, and verse 1 through 5. My brothers and sisters, this is the Apostle James saying, My brothers and sisters, believers in our Lord Jesus Christ, you must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here is a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom that he promised to those who love him? James is writing here to address the issue that though everyone is of equal value before God, not everyone is treated with equal value before God. Watch this video with me. This is a short video, and it's an actual homeless man who was very agreeable and desirous to do this. I believe this was in Austin, Texas, for all of those longhorns out there. He agreed to go out on the street dressed up as a businessman first, and then dressed up in his regular homeless garb. And um, I think you'll find it interesting. Um, Keep in mind that um, though everyone is equal value before the Lord, everyone is not always treated equally. Let's look, uh, look along with me at this video. Excuse me, but I need 50 cents for a bus ticket. I'm just just a little bit short. I get my 50 cents, I get to go. Kind of in a big hurry. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, sir. Well, thank you. Two dollars. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. I'm about a dollar short from a Subway sandwich. It's embarrassing to have to ask. Well, thank you so much. Five dollars. I asked for 25 cents for a cup of coffee, and he said, it's too hot today for a cup of coffee. And he reached in and he pulled out a five. Quarter short for a cup of coffee. Could you help me? Well, that's okay. That's okay. You know what? 
I actually have a quarter, come to think of it. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Okay. Thank you. Are you homeless? That's uh, really heartwarming that you're going to give him a quarter. Oh, really? Let me help you out really quick. Thank you. Thank you. Take it, man. Thank you. No problem. I'm short by about 50 cents for a cup of coffee. I really need a cup of coffee. Yeah, my name's Sandy. I need about 50 cents for a bus ticket. Okay, sorry. Yeah. And then I need about 50 cents for a bus ticket. I'm just a dollar short from a Subway sandwich. I got every... I'm sorry, man. No. No, I, I didn't even say anything. Oh, Stop. He's... Okay. Wow. <laughs> well, um, you know think it's pretty obvious there. God calls us in the church to live a different way than in the world. I'm not saying that we in the church don't have many of those same feelings, uh, but the reality is every person is to be treated with equal and value, and favoritism is to be eradicated from our midst. Uh, and we can feel that. Can't you feel that in your own heart as you look at that? Can't you feel yourself? And um, or I can feel myself, if I'm to be really honest in that, that God wants us to live in a different way. So the rich and poor are both made in God's image. Favoritism is forbidden in the church. The next thing is that the rich are called to be financially generous. 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19 says this, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Jesus makes clear that we're responsible to use what we have been given for others' good. It's very obvious. And those who are wealthy have been given a responsibility with the finances that they have, but as well their time and other resources. The rich... Uh, are, are to use what they have in God-honoring ways through generosity, even extravagant generosity. Um, the next thing we'd observe from Scripture, and we'll close this part up as we're looking, what does the Scripture say about rich and poor? Is this, the poor are chosen by God to teach the rich, the wealthy, <laughs> the rich, whatever you call it, to be rich in faith. Listen, my dear brothers, this is the same passage we're picking up. Uh, which we read verse 5 already. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be, what's the word there? Rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom He promised those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of, to him, of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. Continuing on in James, as we're seeing here, the author clearly states that the poor have been chosen by God to be rich in faith. 
Now, this might bring a question to you. Does this mean the rich cannot be rich in faith? It does not mean the rich cannot be rich in faith. I've said rich a lot in that one sentence. But the reality is, rich people, and I want us to grab hold of this today, rich people need a healthy dose of contact with poor people in order to learn to be rich in faith. Rich people cannot just stay among rich people and learn. And when I say rich, I understand you may not consider yourself rich, uh, or you may not consider yourself poor, but we're talking in degrees. We come from a wealthy nation. We come from a place where um, we, we have been given much. And there are those among us who are struggling, and there's no shame in that. But the reality is, we must have a healthy dose of contact with the rich, with the poor, in order to learn to be rich in faith. I've seen this throughout my travels in the world, as I have visited those who are poor financially, as I've been, I've been to 40 countries, and throughout these countries, I have been flabbergasted, uh, to use a good word, by uh, the faith of some of the most simple people in loving Jesus who have nothing but simply uh, a faith in Jesus and an ability and desire to give everything that they have. But you know, it's interesting. It also appears, here's a little piece here, (laughs) that the rich need to have a healthy dose of contact with the poor in order to be generous financially as well. That's interesting. Now, we need to have contact with the poor in order to be rich in faith, but we also need to have contact, we, whoever would be rich, I'm not necessarily classifying all of us that way, but those who are rich, it's interesting. Uh, We can have a healthy dose, as we have a healthy dose of contact with those who are are poor or the rich do, they, um, we can have that contact by going across the street or going across the world. You can have that dose of contact. It's in our city. It's in the world. But here's an interesting thing. In an article, America's Generosity, to Divi- Generosity Divide by Emily Gipple and Ben Gose on philanthropy.com, it says this. Now, this is really interesting. The rich are not the most generous. In the Washington metropolitan area, for example, low- and middle-income communities like Suitland, Maryland, and Capitol Heights, Maryland, donate a much bigger share of discretionary income than do wealthier communities like Bethesda, Maryland, and McLean, 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 Virginia. The 1% really are different. Rich, listen to this, this is so interesting. Rich people who live in neighborhoods with many other wealthy people give a smaller share of their incomes to charity than rich people who live in more economically diverse communities. When people making more than $200,000 a year account for more than 40% of the taxpayers in a zip code, the wealthy residents give an average of 2.8% of their discretionary income to charity, compared with an average of 4.2% when those of 200,000 or more live in a diverse community. Isn't that interesting? When the rich stick with the rich. Now, this is an interesting topic to consider. There, this is, in some ways, circumstantial evidence, but it is something for us to consider as we think about that fact. Well, we've looked a little bit about uh, the fact that rich and poor are alike, uh, all made by the Lord. We're all called, um, uh, we're all valued in His sight and favoritism is forbidden. The rich are commanded to be generous <laughs> and uh, the poor are, are able to teach us much about what it means to uh, be generous in faith or uh, uh, to be rich in faith as well as teaching uh, us as a people uh, how to be uh, generous. But how do we create a place for the rich and the poor? 
The first thing is that we must see the rich and the poor with an eternal perspective. Psalm 62 and verse 9 says this, Surely the lowborn are but a breath, the highborn are but a lie. If weighed on a balance, they are nothing. Together, they are only a breath. In light of eternity, the rich do not have, this is kind of a repeat, a higher place than the poor. Both are on equally honorable, but equally humbling footing as well. Uh, uh, when I grew up in Dallas, Texas, I was by no means poor. <laughs> but I did go to a, a high school there um, that was all about status. Anybody been to any of those all about status high schools? <clears throat> if I told you the name of uh, where I was, you might, uh, and you knew about it, you, you would know what I was talking about. Well, it was all about what car you drove, what jeans you wore. And when I was growing up, it was the Jordash look. That's what it was. The Jordash look. You, you, anybody know about the Jordash look? Yeah? These were the original skinny jeans, you know, so tight. Yeah. But they were called designer jeans, right? Wasn't that it? So anyway, you had to have the right jeans. You had to have the right car. You had to have everything. Which house you lived in, all that was important. Unfortunately, oh, very unfortunately for me, I had gotten into a wreck. I had an emerald emerald green 1972 Buick Skylark. And I got into a wreck, but I don't know what happened. I was unable to get a green fender for it. So it had a, as I remember it, it was a red fender. It was obnoxious. It also had an I Love Jesus sticker on the back, and I wasn't that excited at that time about Jesus. So, but I didn't want to take it off because I felt like it'd be total blasphemy. So I was just, you know. Uh, anyway, <laughs> I got into wreck and I'm driving it and I can guarantee you that I felt less than. I definitely felt less than. I felt that others uh, at, at times in my life, have you felt that way? We've all felt that way uh, in different areas in different ways. But if we have the eternal perspective, we know this. And something that I've said about our church, hopefully the way we operate many times. The great thing about us as a church is the one who is among us, Jesus Jesus is really what's great about us. And boy, He is great. And you know, when Jesus is made great, everyone gets honored. Not just a few. We're to honor everyone as made in the image of God. Genesis 1.27 says this, So God created mankind in His image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. In Jesus, in His most distressing disguise by Brandon Voigt, He's the content director at Word on Fire Catholic Ministries. He writes this about Mother Teresa. I think it's interesting uh, that um, as we think about this topic of honoring everyone is made in the image of God. From the time of her birth in 1910, Agnes Bajaktu, Mother Teresa, I'll call her Teresa from now on, was uh, trained to respect the dignity of others, even those that society ignores. Each weeknight, Agnes's mother invited poor people into their home for dinner and conversation. She especially welcomed women in distress, old widows uh, with no caretakers, homeless women with no roof, and unwed mothers shunned by family and friends. Agnes's brother later commented that our mother never let any of these poor people who came into our door leave empty-handed. When we would look at her strangely, she would say, keep in mind that even those who are not our blood relatives, even if they are poor, are still our brothers or brethren. It was through this serving of visitors that Teresa first discovered Jesus in his most distressing disguise. 
She came to value the poor, not because of what they could do or not because of what they could produce, but because of their job or because of their job or credentials, but because they radiated to her the image of God. You remember me talking about us all made in the image of God. According to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, I actually really like this. The dignity of the human person is rooted in his creation in the image and likeness of God. Wow. According to that, uh, Mother Teresa took her values. Thus, from the beginning until now, every man and woman bears the divine image and so bears with it an inestimable dignity. An inestimable dignity. That's what the uh, Catechism of the Catholic Church says. People often ask Mother Teresa why she loved poor people so much, how she could honor dignity in difficult situations. In response, she liked to grasp their hands slowly, right? She'd grasp it and she'd wiggle their finger like this and she'd go, you did this to me. And then she went into the sermon. She went in to share out of Matthew chapter 25 when Jesus teaches about the final judgment. Jesus teaches about that. And our Lord explains at the end of the world that He will judge people by their deeds of mercy. To the kind and giving, He will say, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. A stranger and you welcomed me. Naked and you clothed me. And you cared, uh, you cared for me in prison and you visited me. But his surprised listeners asked, Lord, when did we see you hungry? Or when did we see you thirsty and give you a drink? Jesus replies, Amen. I said to you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers of mine, you did this for me. For Mother Teresa, this passage wasn't just a pious metaphor. It described reality. The secret to her infectious joy and boundless compassion was that every person, every paralytic, every leper, every invalid, and every orphan In them, she recognized Jesus. We're to see the rich and poor with that perspective that we're all made in the image of God, but we're also all simply dust before God in light of His eternal scheme. We are certainly to understand that everyone's to be honored in the image of God, which I think Mother Teresa um, modeled for us so well. We're also to be generous enough to give what we have and humble enough to receive what we need. And the Scripture says here in 2 Corinthians, for if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. That should be a relief for some and a challenge for us as others. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you're hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality as it is written. The one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone, rich or poor, has something to give and they have something to receive. I want you just to say that today. I have something to give. Say that. And say, I have something to receive. This is vitally important. If we're going to become a place for the rich and the poor, it doesn't have to do with some are the givers and some are the receivers. Everyone has something to give and everyone has something to receive. I want to remind us of that. There's two main elements and we're going to... We're coming toward the close here. There's two main elements in this in order to increasingly become a place for the rich and for the poor. And they are humility. Can you say that? And generosity. Everybody 
in a community need to be humble and they need to be generous. <laughs> and um, there are weaknesses that we all carry. Humility, there must be a willingness of those who are wealthy or in easier circumstances to listen to and to learn from those who are in more humble circumstances. There must be. I want to take a challenge, and I'm going to take this challenge this week myself. And this is not a burden of a challenge. It's actually a blessing. It's just asking you and asking me to get blessed. Here's what I want to challenge us to do. You could do it in some other form or fashion as well if you figure a way to, to do something. But I want to challenge each of you who have a commute this week, or even if you don't, to search it out, to take a few minutes during that commute, go early five minutes, ten minutes, whatever, and um, sit with a homeless person. You can give them money, pray for them, whatever you feel to do, but sit with a homeless person and talk to them for ten minutes and hear their story and learn something from them. Just listen to them. Listen to their story. Listen to what, um, what is going on. So I'm asking you to listen and to receive something. You may receive a lesson from it. Maybe they haven't learned a lesson, but you're, you're warned through that. Or you may receive some incredibly valuable lessons, which I've learned from uh, people of all walks of life, including homeless. Um, and then give them something. It doesn't have to be money. Oftentimes, you know, that is something that's, that's needed, but it may be a prayer or a hug. So humility, we have to have a willingness to listen to and receive from those in more humble circumstances, those who are in the... Uh, less humble circumstances. But there also needs to be a humility for those in humble circumstances financially. And that can happen in a place like this. We have a need and we do not want to let it be known because we do not want to appear weak. We do not want to appear needful. But there has to be a humility in those who are experiencing a humble circumstance to let their needs be known and to receive from others. And if you don't realize that you have needs, no matter how much money you have, then I pray God will open your eyes and mine as well to that fact. So there needs to be a humility from everyone, rich, poor, young, old, uh, whatever background you're from, everyone operates in humility and says, I can attempt to learn something from every person that I encounter. I can honor someone with the image of God that they carry uh, in, in the way that is very important. I think it is very important how we treat those that we come in contact with um, throughout our city, whatever their stance is in life. The second thing is generosity. There must be a willingness for those with means to give generously to those in need. But not only with finances. Not just write my check and, you know. But uh, that's a nice thing. That's a good thing. But also with time. Also with, uh, with effort. And there must be an empowerment of those who do not have a great financial means to see themselves as givers. This is an important piece. The rich, those who have means, uh, whether you want to say rich or, or advantaged financially or in a comfortable place, whatever the word might be, those are, are obviously commanded by God to give. But I want to say this. Uh, what the poor have to give is extremely important to God. Extremely important to God. Well, you may... Uh, I, let me just read this for you. Mark 12, 41 through 44, we read this. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd, putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, while the poor, uh, I'm sorry, many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. 
Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, gave everything she had to live on. Financially disadvantaged people are not helped by never being taught how to give. We must teach each person, those who are wealthy, those who are middle income, those who are disadvantaged in the income category. We must teach everyone that their gift financially, as well as the gift that God's given them, is vitally important to our community. It's not the size of the gift that they give, but what that gift means to them and to the Lord. And the last thing I want to say here is that as we've learned to give and to receive, we want to go everywhere proclaiming the good news to the poor. How do we become a place for the rich and the poor? We get about Jesus' work of making and proclaiming the good news to the poor. Isaiah 61.1, which Jesus himself repeated uh, in the temple as he read it, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. We cannot fully become a place for the rich and poor unless we're committed to carry the good news about Jesus to those who are poor in spirit and those who are poor financially. We seek to accomplish this. We do this all the time. If you'll notice, what, what are we about? We want to be about Jesus' mission to proclaim His good news to, the, to those who are rich and to those who are poor, but to get the good news of Jesus Christ as far as we can, to share it with as many as we can through short-term trips, um, through church planting in our city, in our nation. We want to be obedient. Because, um, you know, people sometimes ask me about my interaction. with. They laugh at me sometimes, the way I, I act around different people from different countries. You know, I'm walking in Dunkin' Donuts, namaste, you know, or whatever. I'm, I'm, uh, and that's, uh, that is not a, um, let me make clear... <laughs> That's the Dunkin' Donuts here. That's not everyone at Dunkin' Donuts. Everyone at Dunkin' Donuts does not say namaste. It's just the Dunkin' Donuts I go into, okay? <laughs> I'm not trying to make a comment on, on everyone. You get what I'm saying, right? Okay? <laughs> but wherever I am, I want to say, uh, I want to greet people. That's why I say salam to the Ethiopian people that I meet and know. I have a great relationship. And all over, I'm, I'm attempting to make a connect with them. And people are like, why are you so much that way? Well, I've been to 40 countries. I have been among these people. It's changed my life. It's changed my heart. I'll never be the same again. We want to be about being outside of our bounds, outside of our comfort zone, so that we can become a place when people come to us, they realize these people are not ingrown. <laughs> these people are people that are about the nations of the earth. A large part of that uh, is us being willing to take the risk, to take the good news of Jesus everywhere. Conclusion here, I want to say, and we'll just have a very simple response today, is may we be a place where the rich and the poor are treated with equal value, where the rich and poor give and receive what they have to, to give and receive, and where God's financial and spiritual resources are released on communities and the nations as a result. Let's stand. As a response today, I just want to practice because we can talk about this all we want. The reality of us becoming a place um, where everyone is valued for their worth. And specifically, we're talking today in the financial area. And we need to just respond to the Lord. These two issues that I mentioned, humility and generosity, I want us just to, just to practice this today. 
The first thing is, I'd like you to attempt. You don't have to do this. Jeff's not making you do it, but I'd like you to do it. <laughs> um, I'd ask you to find someone around you today, someone in this room, that you can admit a need to. That you can say, I have a need. Either It can be financially. It can be relationally. You can say, I need prayer for this. You could say, whatever. But you're, at, you're humbling your heart and saying, I have a need. I need help in this area. I'm not going to try to appear that I've got it all together. I'm going to be the real taco. Whatever you want to call it. And then, I want you, as you shared that, them to be able to share what they need. And then I want you to give something back. That could be a hug. That could be prayer. That would be a couple of great things. That could be advice in the right spirit. If God's telling you, be careful with that. It could be finances. It could be counsel. Whatever that is. But I want us to begin practicing so that when people come to us from whatever background people come to us that are millionaires people come to us off the street or people that are in very humble circumstances they all feel a sense everybody here is humble and everybody here is generous and that's when we're going to have the place for the rich and for the poor that we so long for because we don't represent God's uh, in this world Jesus said the poor will always be here with us until the new heavens and the new earth so we won't truly represent God's grace if we're not representing So let's take a moment. I want you to think. I'll be quiet for a moment here. I want you to think. What's something that you have need in? And then... One definition of faith is forsaking all I trust Him. Forsake your reputation today. Don't worry about what someone next to you thinks about your need. I want you to share that need with them. And then ask them if they have need. Give to one another whatever God tells you to give. And then let's rejoice in our Lord Jesus Christ who gave His own blood and His own body so that we could have life.